Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. This will be our fourth show show or interview discussing his books. His name is Jefferson Morley, and he's just published a book, June 7th, 2022. Title of it is Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spymaster, and Watergate. Our first interview, we discussed James Jesus Angleton in Jefferson's book, the Ghost, The Secret Life of CI Spymaster, James Jesus Angleton. And then we also talked about Morley v. CIA, my unfinished JFK investigation that went all the way up and uh, involved Brett Kavanaugh. Very interesting. And then also Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA, another fascinating book. But uh, he has two other books, CIA and JFK, The Secret Assassination Files. And then in 2012, he published Snowstorm in August. Washington City, Francis Scott Key and the Forgotten Race Riot of 1835. And he was a former World News Editor at Washington Post for 15 years. He's also the editor of Deep States, or at the deepstateblog.org, which monitors the world's intelligence agencies. And you can see his information about the JFK assassination at jfkfacts.org. And his website is his full name, Jefferson Morley, M-O-R-L-E-Y.com. But again, we're going to talk about this just published very fascinating book about Watergate and some of the characters involved. Titled again, Scorpion's Dance, The President, The Spy Master, and Watergate with Jefferson Morley. So Jefferson, welcome, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, William. Thanks for that awesome. comprehensive introduction. <laughs> I try to be correct. I'll put the links into our earlier interviews, too, so people can, if they're done listening to this, they can go back and listen to our other talks about your books. But maybe for people who didn't hear those earlier interviews, you can just kind of talk about your book writing career and what led you to Scorpion's Dance. Yeah, well, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned the other books because this book is really the third in a trilogy of spies. Um, uh, Our Man in Mexico is the first in the trilogy, the, the story of Winston Scott, the CIA's top man in Mexico in the 1960s. And that's really the story of the CIA man in the field. Uh, the CIA man as proconsul in a foreign country, and then the ghost, which you also, which we talked about another time, the biography of James Angleton, the chief of counterintelligence at the CIA from 1954 to 1974, and he's really the exemplar of the spy as intellectual. Um, and then this third volume, Scorpion's Dance, really focuses on uh, uh, Richard Helms, the director of the CIA. And he is the model of the spy as bureaucrat. So my three CIA books each show different dimensions of the CIA. And they all take place in roughly the same time period, the early Cold War from 1945 to 1975. And in addition, you know, these three men, Wynne Scott, Jim Angleton, and Dick Helms, were all friends as well as colleagues. They had come together in the Office of Strategic Services the wartime intelligence agency during World War II, uh, and they worked together for the rest of their lives. So uh, really, the books as a whole are a comprehensive look at the rise of the CIA in its first 25 years or so of existence. So that's kind of the setting for all the series of books. Now, Scorpion's Dance tells a very particular story, um, uh, and not just about the CIA. Scorpion's Dance tells the story of the long and twisted relationship between Richard Helms, the eighth director of the CIA, uh, and Richard Nixon, the 35th president. And as I, as, as, I, as, as I show in the book, you know, these men had a relationship a long, long time 
before the Watergate burglary ever happened. And I really thought when I set out to write this book that that backstory was really important, that you couldn't understand the Watergate burglary without understanding how Nixon and Helms had come to work together and how far back they went and the secrets that they shared. And so as a result, the book starts in 1956 when the two men meet for the first time. Nixon is vice president um, and Helms is a senior CIA official who comes to brief uh, the vice president about his forthcoming trip to Hungary. That's the first time the two men meet. And while they were never close friends, they did work together uh, intensely, especially at the end of uh, Nixon's time as vice president, 1959 and 1960, when um, Nixon appointed himself kind of point man of President Eisenhower's Cuba policy. Fidel Castro, the leftist, had taken power in a national rebellion that overthrew a pro-American uh, dictatorship uh, and um, had come to power. And Nixon was very concerned about that, and so was the CIA. And they decided early on that they were not going to tolerate Castro's uh, staying in power. And so they set out to overthrow him, uh, primarily by the uh, by means of assassination initially. And this was kind of the secret that Helms and Nixon had in common, the CIA assassination plots, and was always a matter of serious business between them because it was something that both men had to keep out of the public record lest it threaten their jobs. And so that backstory is very important. And that's, you know, starting in 1960, 1961 um, is when the men first begin to deal with each other on, a, you know, national policy issues. At the same time, the other part of that backstory that's important is we start to see the other characters who will turn up in the Watergate break-in. First and foremost, Howard Hunt, Helms's good friend and colleague, a senior official in the agency's Western Hemisphere Division who had served in Mexico, uh, Paraguay, uh, Cuba, um, when the CIA determined to overthrow Castro. They, they sent Howard Hunt to Havana to survey the situation and come back. And Hunt comes back in March 1960 with four recommendations, the first of which, the very first of which is assassinate Fidel Castro. So uh, Hunt was in on the assassination business early on as well. Um, James McCord surfaces. He, uh, some CIA men had been arrested in, in Cuba and were being held in a prison. McCord was called in to develop a plan to break into the prison and free them. So McCord was involved in Cuba operations. Rolando Martinez, uh, uh, who turns up as one of the burglars in 1972, was a full-time CIA employee at this time. He was a boat captain, and he was running infiltration, sabotage, and terrorism missions into Cuba uh, throughout this period. Frank Sturgis, another future burglar, is, is very active in the Miami scene, not working directly for the CIA. He was kind of a soldier of fortune who worked with the CIA in the effort to overthrow Castro. Um, Bernard Barker, Macho Barker, was also involved in that effort. He was Hunt's deputy. Uh, in, the, in the agency's operation to overthrow Castro at the Bay of Pigs, which of course ended disastrously with a, a victory by Castro and a humiliating defeat for the CIA. So this is and when- all those people you just mentioned involved too, all were involved and all were very angry about what happened at the Bay of Pigs, right? 
That's right. They were all very upset. They all felt that President Kennedy had chickened out. They held him personally responsible. They were bitterly critical of Kennedy. Um, and so these are all the men who will resurface at, uh, at, at the Watergate burglary. And what you see by knowing that backstory is just how well Dick Helms knew all of these men, something that really wasn't understood at the time of the burglary. Helms would be very skillful in playing off and pretending like he knew nothing about these men, when in fact he was very good friends with Hunt um, and well acquainted with James McCord. So all of that is really a way of saying, you know, when I, when I, when I thought of this book, I, I realized that what, what I wanted to do was change the frame of the Watergate story. You know, Watergate has pretty much always been told as a story, in, as a chapter in the history of the presidency of Richard Nixon, um, or al alternatively, as a chapter in the history of a free press, the Washington Post, the story of all the president's men, you know, that the a crusading free press brought down a lawless president. I wanted to change the frame of that. I, I, I'm not saying that, that those other versions are wrong, but I think but if you change the frame and you look at Watergate as a chapter in the history of the CIA, the story begins to look a little bit different. In fact, very different. And I think you, we see a lot more of what was really going on and a lot more of why it was going on. So that's really the kind of the, 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 con, the, the conceptual frame of the book that I try and tell the story within that of the relationship between these two men, Richard Nixon and Richard Helms, and how it, their relationship was what, what led to Watergate. Right. And so they both kind of are coming up together. Nixon comes to presidency in 68, which overlaps with Helm from 66 to 73, right, right. as Watergate ended, kind of the ending. And Nixon, Watergate happens right before Nixon goes into his second term, right? So that's June 17th, 1972, right? Right. At the end of his first term. So, you know, he's... Um, breaking gets caught, yeah. Yeah. But, um, can you can you talk about uh, the, this different kind of parallax view, looking at it as a C, with the CIA involved, what led up to June seventeenth, nineteen seventy two? Well, I think I, I think if you look at, at at Watergate, the Watergate burglary is a chapter in the history of the CIA, and 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 you you know the backstory. A couple of things really stand out. I mean, first of all, you know. The the role of the CIA is not really you know, explored or explained at all in the, uh, what I call the Washington Post narrative of Watergate, the all the president's men narrative. You know, at the, at the beginning of, at the beginning of all the president's men, there's a, there's, there's a scene where James McCord, who has just been arrested, is arraigned. And um, uh, the, the judge hearing the arraignment asks him, where do you work? And he says, the CIA. And there's 28-year-old Bob Woodward in the in, in the front row in the, in the courtroom. And he says, holy shit. And he runs back to the Washington Post newsroom. And I got the call logs from the CIA Public Affairs Office in the course of the research for this book. And like 30 minutes after McCord utters those words, the CIA Public Affairs Office gets a phone call, probably from Woodward or somebody else at the Post who had heard, and says, who's this guy and, and does he work for you? So right away... You know, that was like an interesting point. But you know what? That's the last time the word the CIA appears in the Washington, in the story of all the president's men. The CIA is really not a factor at all in the story. 
because Hel Richard Helms and the CIA were able to play this off and pretend like they had no connection with these men. When, if you know the backstory, they were connected to all of them, especially Helms and Hunt. Helms and Hunt were very good friends. And this is one of the big revelations of the book is these were men who had lunch together three to six times a year. They shared personal and professional confidences. They were really, they were really, you know, buddies, um, very different men. You know, Helms was very smooth, a true gentleman, friends in high places. People really liked Dick Helms. He was a charming and impressive man, you know, um, and also, you know, a man of power, you know, and if you spent time around him, people recognize that. <laughs> Henry Kissinger said very memorably of Dick Helms, he said, his smile did not always include his eyes. <laughs> you know, he was, he was a true spook. He was a real intelligence professional, a spy master, you know. Um, Howard Hunt was kind of the opposite. He was brash. He was outspoken. He was obnoxious. He was impulsive. He was careless. You know, he, he wasn't that good a spy. But for some reason, Dick Helms really liked Howard Hunt. He, he, he really just, you know, he tolerated his excesses and his failures. And, uh, and it was Hunt who Hunt was the head of the, the Mexico branch prior to Win Scott too, right? So that's right. Hunt had Hunt had opened the CIA's first station in Mexico City in the early 1950s, and had hired a precocious kid out of Yale named William F. Buckley as his sidekick. And so William F. Buckley, also a right winger like like Hunt himself, starts out in the spy business and works for Hunt for a year, and the two men become become friends for life. Um, and uh, uh, so that was another part of how I got the story was I was able to get access to the correspondence between Buckley and Hunt, which went back to the 1950s. And, you know, Hunt really um, confided in Buckley. They were both conservative politically, so they shared that. They, they had kids who were the same age, so that Buckley was godfather to one of, of Hunt's kids. And so... Through that correspondence, I was really able to get a glimpse of who Howard Hunt really was and, and his history in the agency and his history as a, you know, as an operator um, and a conservative, which was, a, you know, an important part of, 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 of the story. Um, also, you know, uh, Helms had a history with James McCord. McCord was a senior official in what's called the Office of Security. The Office of Security is like the CIA's internal police force. They vet employees. They, they secure agency property. They keep agency you know, officials and agents safe. So it's a very important function in a clandestine service. And um, Helms really relied on McCord, especially in the 1960s when the CIA was, felt threatened by possible violence from the anti-war movement, from, from critics. You know, McCord was put in charge with, of hardening CIA facilities in the late 1960s as the anti-war movement starts to turn violent. When President Nixon visited CIA headquarters um, early on in his first term in 1969, Helms put McCord in charge of the security arrangements, you know, a major assignment, making sure that the president's safe. And, uh, and Helms thought that, that McCord had done a good job in that. So, you know, that was another tie to the burglars that, that, um, that Helms had. And, um, you know, Helms always said, oh, you know, I didn't know much about Hunt's work for the White House. You know, that was just a cover story. There's a there's a White House tape where you hear 
Bob Haldeman say very clearly, a year before the Watergate break in June, July 1971, um, Helms is looking for a you know a, a, a dirty tricks operator to to you know take the fight to his enemies, especially Daniel Ellsberg, the Defense Department official who had just leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times, which drove Nixon insane with rage and. Nixon in, in the summer of 1971 was raging against Ellsberg all the time, denouncing him as a traitor and a Jew and, you know, it really incited Nixon's bile. And he wants somebody to, to smear Ellsberg, to discredit him in the press. And Haldeman says to the president, well, you know, there's this guy Hunt who's recently retired from the CIA and Haldeman, Bob Haldeman was Nixon's chief of staff. And he says, he says to Nixon, well, Hunt says he's talking about, I'm talking about Hunt. Helms says he's quiet, ruthless, and careful, you know. So Helms had recommended Hunt to the White House, it, it, but far from not knowing anything about it, it. Hunt got the job thanks to Helms, you know. That's how close he was. You know, and and Helms it, got his guy in the White House. Yeah, to, yeah. Right, so it worked both ways. Yeah, yeah and, and, and none of this was, none of this was, was known, was known to the public. And then I show that both Hunt and McCord, as burglars working for the White House, also fed their information, the same information that they obtained in these burglaries. And the Watergate was just one of the burglaries they carried out. Right. All the information that they obtained went back to the CIA. I mean, yes, the White House got copies of the transcripts of the wiretaps and copies of the files, you know, the things that the burglars were stealing. But the CIA also got copies. And we know this because Hunt sent his information back to Helms via the, the, the CIA has an office in the National Security Council offices, which are in the White House or in the executive office building. So the CIA has a presence there and Hunt would go there and hand over packages which were addressed to Helms. So that was one way that Helms got the take from the Watergate burglars. And McCord took the... Took the um, took the information that he had obtained at home where he shared it with a, with a man named Pennington, who was a, a, a CIA source who kept a big archive of sensitive information about possible subversives. So McCord also fed the CIA with the information that the, that the burglars had obtained. So this was part of the subterranean relationship. And so in the myth of Watergate that we get in all the president's men say, you know, the president is lawless, you know, and he has these burglars working for him and all the president's men cover up what the burglars were doing. But that really misses that the burglars were not a White House project. They were a joint CIA White House project. Um, uh, both parties were benefiting from this arrangement, um, especially Dick Helms. So, right. When, and there's much more to the story than just burglaring the DNC, too, right? Yes, right, right. It's, you know, Frank Sturgis told the FBI that he had participated in seven different burglaries targeting Chilean government officials and offices in New York and Washington. Chile was a target at the time because it had a leftist government led by Salvador Allende, and they were pro-Cuba. Wasn't They weren't communist. It was still a free country. But it was very leftist, and and Nixon and 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 and, Helm, and Helms and Kissinger, they hated that, and they were out to over, you know they were out to overthrow Allende from day one. So those missions of the Watergate burglars were aimed at you know advancing uh, you know Nixon's policy of hostility 
towards this government. Um, so Allende, that, I think that was like the first September 11th, too. September yes. 11th, 73 was when he was overthrown. Was when In a very was, yeah. brutal way, fashion, yeah. So Yeah. So but that's all happening in the background. of That's all left out in the stand, like you said, all the president's men standard narrative. Those nuances yeah. are left out. Yeah, yeah. No, you, re you really don't see the hidden hand of the CIA. But it was quite important because it determined, you know, how Nixon and Helms responded. Nixon, understandably, since Helms had given him the burglars, right, six out of the seven burglars had connections to the CIA. Without Helms, Nixon would have had no burglars. The only burglar who wasn't connected to the CIA was Gordon Liddy, the former FBI agent. Otherwise, this was really more of a CIA operation than, a, than, uh, than anything, um, especially since they were getting the tape. Um, but no, you know, very little of this was known um, at the time. And Helms very cleverly distanced himself from the whole thing and put out the word, the CIA put out the word that these men were retirees and we've had no dealings with them since their retirement two years before. You know, and that was just a pure lie. It was a cover story to cover up a much deeper and more collaborative relationship, which was, you know, continuing right up through through you know through the day of the burglary and in fact there's a very in, in in the book i tell the story i found the tape there's a tape of nixon and helms talking on the night of june 16th 1972 just hours before the burglary takes place and on the it's a pretty ordinary phone call but the relationship between the two men you can hear is pretty friendly you know nixon and helms for all their differences and they did have a lot of differences were actually a pretty good team. You know, they were pretty, they were working together. They were partners in power um, by the end of Nixon's first term. So that too was something that is, you know, wasn't really known. So we see the book in, in Scorpion's Dance, you really see the hidden hand of the CIA in the Watergate affair, how it shaped the events that led to Watergate and how it shaped the cover-up that followed the investigation of Nixon and the, uh, and eventually Nixon's fall. Nixon's fall. I like this picture because when you made that statement about Helms's eyes, this <laughs> is the two scorpions dancing and you can kind of see maybe some, uh, features of Helms's face, the smile, but yeah, also the eyes. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, Helms had a way of smiling and baring his teeth. And it was like, both friendly, but a little, you know, a little aggressive, you know. Yeah, um, like kind of serpentine or like a yeah something like that. I still, yeah. I still have them. So, yeah. so you know, Dick Helms was a fascinating character. Each of the each of the men who I wrote about in in my three in my trilogy of spies were you know very interesting and distinctive characters. Win Scott was a bluff, charismatic American, you know complex love life, had three, three wives, uh, lots of children and stepchildren. Uh, he was actually a good father. You know, he was a, an interesting character, wrote poetry in his spare time. Jim Angleton was a fascinating character, the chief of counterintelligence and the, the man I, I depict in The Ghost, you know, a, a brilliant, creative mind, uh, but also paranoid and alcoholic, um, a genius and a fool, you know, very interesting man. And then Dick Helms, this savvy bureaucratic operator, you know, who has risen, you know, 30 years in the ranks to, to arrive at the top of the CIA. Imagine the ambition 
you know, and the persistence that it takes to prevail in that climb to power. Um, a real gentleman and a real son of a bitch too, you know, both. Um, and uh, so the, this relationship, and you can see it's some some of the, the complexities in this interesting photograph, you know, these two men of power, really, you know, Nixon, you know, uh, talk about a self-made man, you know, a guy really, who, yeah. who came from nowhere, you know, with nothing, poor family, ineffective. Orange Orchard and Whittier, I mean, really. Yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> Haldeman, Bob Haldeman said, Nixon was a poor boy from California and he never let you forget it, you know? It's like he carried his resentments around with him. Helms, on the other hand, was super smooth, you know, a scion of, you know, almost an aristocrat. People often used that that term with him, that he had an aristocratic bearing, you know? So very, very different from, from Nixon culturally and, and socially. But important to note, not politically, you know, while they were very different types, East Coast, West Coast, elite, populist, that sort of thing. Politically, they were they were very much in tune, you know, uh, Nixon, conservatives, yeah. conservative, hardline, anti-communist, you know, pro-war. Um, and so uh, they they had that in common. And that was that was why they could be, you know, why they had could work together for four years, despite the fact that Helms would I mean, Nixon would grumble about Helms a lot, mostly just his kind of inbred resentment of east coast types and all that you know yeah like the brahmin class i think he wrote that he was on the main line like this wealthiest part of philadelphia right yeah 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 he grew up on the main line his father was a big corporate executive at the aluminum corporation of america and his grandfather was an international banker you know he went to boarding school in switzerland so right. he really had that he really had some you know what they used to call breeding you know Right. And I think he went to that school. There was a lot of important people he went to school with. I forgot who it was, but oh, no, no. he uh, was at the... Well, the, the most important one, probably, he went to this boarding school in Switzerland called La Rosi. Um, and uh, uh, at the, another student at that school, not at the same time when Helms was there, was uh, the Shah of Iran, Shah of Iran that's right. um, who became, when Nixon, after the Watergate affair, uh, Helms wrangles an appointment to be ambassador to Iran, and he becomes friends and a confidant of the Shah of Iran. So, yeah, his his boarding school background is is is, is an important part of his feature and his in his makeup. Reza Pahlavi, Shah Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. Yeah. There's such really super heady times too. So many things were happening all around the world. Chile, like you mentioned, Iran. And yeah, and and so you know, uh, uh, subterfuge, yeah. right? And 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 remember, you know, both of these men, Nixon assuming coming to power in January 1969, and Helms having been CIA director already for two years, you know, these men are at the center of that hurricane, you know, that cultural cataclysm called the Vietnam War. You know, uh, Nixon. Uh, does not wants to escalate the war. He does not want to negotiate an end to it. Opposition to the war is rising. The, the, the belief in Washington is spreading that even among the super hawks, you know, we just can't win this war. We assume that because we have the world's most powerful military and there's a bunch of tiny Japanese guys fighting in their pajamas, you know, we assume that we're going to win. We've always assumed that. But you know what? We can't beat these guys, you know, and that was a very tough thing for the American elite. 
to, to accept, you know, that, that the United States couldn't prevail with force of arms over these people. And yet as the war dragged on and more and more boys were killed, you know, it was like people started to realize it was really true. You know, there was, they had the capacity, no matter how badly we bombed them, no matter how many people we killed, they did not, we could not break their will. You know, we could not do what you have to do in the war. We could not break their will. And so Nixon and Kissinger did not want to accept this. Now, over at the CIA, that realization was sinking in, you know, because the CIA analysts on the intelligence side of the CIA, not the, not the dirty tricks, you know, paramilitary covert action side, but the intelligence side, the people who just study issues and try and give the president the best advice, you know, early on, as early as 1963, 64, the CIA's analysts were saying, we are not winning this war. You know, the enemy is replacing all of the people that we kill and more. You know, they're not only not only are we not weakening them, they're getting stronger. And so the, the United States Johnson figures, well, we'll just escalate. We'll bomb them some more. The CIA studies the results of the bombing. You know, it doesn't really affect their will to fight or their ability to fight. And so Helms is kind of riding this contradiction at the CIA. You know, on the one hand, the, the experts, the analysts are saying, we're not winning this war. The Pentagon is over there saying, you know, we're going to win it. There's light at the end of the tunnel. And the CIA guys are saying, you know, maybe, but not really, you know. And after a few years, you know, by the time Nixon comes into office, the CIA is pretty pessimistic. Now, Helms put those doubts aside. Um, he uh, did not convey them to, to, to Nixon because he knew Nixon and Kissinger did not want to hear that. They did not want to hear, we can't win this war. So, and in fact, Helms turns into one of Nixon's biggest supporters when he wants to expand the war. Uh, in 1970, Kissinger, they decide to expand the war into Cambodia, which had previously been neutral and had not been a site of war, um, uh, had been a staging ground for the North Vietnamese, but not a battleground. And it becomes a battleground in 1970. A lot of Nixon's cabinet, his own secretary of state, his own defense secretary, did not want to expand the war. Helms did. Helms supported Nixon and Kissinger in doing that. So there was this policy sympathy between the two of them, which is one reason why Nixon trusted Helms, because Helms had, had stood by his policies very loyally, you know, even when they were under intense criticism from Nixon's own cabinet and Nixon's own party. You know, by 1971 and 72, even, you know, liberal Republicans are breaking with Nixon and saying, you guys have to end this war. We just, it can't go on, you know. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that that escalation was immense. There were more bombs dropped on Southeast Asia than uh, in Europe during World War II by the Americans. So they several, really, they escalate, yeah. Several, several times more. I mean, not, not just a little bit more, like two or three times more tons of ordnance are dropped on Vietnam than are dropped in Europe in, in, in the whole of, of World War II. So, but, you know, this, this display of violence is incredible. And the casualties on the Vietnamese side were catastrophic, far, far beyond. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, um, you know, the, the Vietnamese communists had organized themselves, had roots in the society, and they were able to withstand everything we threw at them. So Nixon and Kissinger, kind of at, by the end of Nixon's first term, had figured out, a way to negotiate a peace. They had de-escalated 
the American presence, beefed up the Vietnamese army, and they thought, you know, the U.S. could withdraw. And in 1973, as Nixon's term is starting and the Watergate scandal is blowing up, Nixon and Kissinger sign a peace agreement that, you know, formally ends the Vietnam War. And there's a big cocktail party and Nixon and Kissinger are the toast of the town. And finally, the war is going to end. And Kissinger, Helms and his wife go to a very fancy Washington dinner party where Kissinger, you know, gets up to speak afterwards and toasts the president and says, you know, to the architects of peace, you know, we have finally done it. You know, our critics are all wrong. You know, And Helms leans over to his wife and he says, they haven't got any peace. And sure enough, that was right. That was the view at the CIA. And two years later, the Vietnamese communists, you know, finally took over and ousted the, overthrew the American government and the Americans had to flee. And the United States had lost the war. So that was, you know, kind of Vietnam is the backdrop of this whole story. You know, the, the tensions, the incredible tensions in American society generated by, um, you know, the war and the opposition to the war, the, 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 the fatalities of the war, the anti-war movement. Um, yeah, there's just so much super chaotic, so much. And then the JFK assassination is also in the background, too. The, yes. Like yes. Uh, Nixon uses the term the Bay of Pigs thing or whatever. Like he's kind yeah, of. Yeah, right. So, 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 so a couple of things are in the background of this story. One, these shared secrets, the Castro assassination plots is one. Um, the shared, you know, burden of managing the war is, is, is another factor in the Nixon-Helms relationship. And then, yes, you, you, you're right. The, the story of JFK's assassination comes up again and again in Nixon and Helms's relationship throughout his first term because the CIA has a lot to hide about the Kennedy assassination. And Nixon understands that. And so early on in Nixon's presidency, um, he tells John Ehrlichman, his closest domestic policy aide, he says, go over to, to Langley and talk to Helms and tell him we want all of his files on, uh, you know, the secret files, the agency's secret files on the Bay of Pigs. And so Ehrlichman goes in 1969. He goes to see Helms and has lunch with him and Helms promises to help him and I'll, you know, says he'll provide this and provide that. And um, Ehrlichman comes back and he realizes Helms has given him nothing, really. You know, Helms was very smooth. He was very affable, but he knew he knew how to how to not give up the secrets. They, they called him the man who kept the secrets for a good reason. So Ehrlichman doesn't get anything. And about six months later, Nixon sends Ehrlichman back and says, you know, try and get that Bay of Pig stuff out of Helms again. And so Ehrlichman goes again. And same thing, nothing. And this goes on, like every six months, Nixon sends Ehrlichman, go get that Bay of Pig stuff. And so after the fourth time in September, 1979, Ehrlichman comes back and he says, Mr. President, Helms is just not gonna give me that stuff. He says, he's only gonna show it to you in person. He calls it the agency's dirty linen uh, and he doesn't wanna share it with anybody but you. And he could, he's sure that you can appreciate that because you know, you wouldn't want um, you know, his, his successors, you know, to, to be sharing your secrets. And so Nixon is very annoyed with this and he calls Helms on the carpet in, in October, 1971. And he says, look, Dick, I, I, I really want this stuff about the Bay of Pigs. And Helms says, you know, well, what's this about, Mr. President? And, Helm, and Nixon says, I, I need it for a negotiation. And Helms says, I understand, sir. Of course, he doesn't understand at all. And he doesn't, and Nixon keeps probing and Helms keeps rebuffing him 
what's this about? You know, what what are you saying? And in the in the tape of the conversation, which which I found, and of course the research of the book, you hear Nixon say when in response to when Helms wants to know what this is all about, why does he want this Bay of Pink stuff? Why does he keep asking for it? Um, Nixon says, "The who shot John Angle? The who shot John Angle? In the circumstances, can only be a reference to JFK's assassination." So when Nixon asked Helms for information about the Bay of Pigs, this tape shows that what he had on his mind was that the Bay of Pigs was somehow related to JFK's assassination. And so this tape confirms something that Bob Haldeman, the chief of staff, said in his memoirs, which was, he said, he and Ehrlichman puzzled over this. What, what was Nixon getting at? Why did he care about the Bay of Pigs, you know? It wasn't an issue in American politics in 1970. You know, Cuba was a yeah. foregone issue. Uh, Castro was in power, and the country was totally focused on Vietnam. Nobody cared about Cuba anymore. So why did Nixon obsess about the Bay of Pigs? And Haldeman decided after his conversations with Ehrlichman that the, when Nixon said, you know, the Bay of Pigs or the whole Bay of Pigs thing, that was a coded reference to JFK's assassination. Right. In this tape, I, which I highlight for the first time, really I'm the first writer to focus on it, this tape shows that Haldeman was right, that Nixon did have JFK's assassination on his mind when he talked about the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Right, and you and have that, a chapter, that's the title of the chap, one of the chapters in your book, right? Yeah, 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 the Who Shot John Angle. Yeah, and, and, and this is important in Watergate because six days after the break-in, Nixon and, 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 and Helms are both in a panic, right? Their men are in jail. Hunt's, Helms's friend, Howard Hunt, is on the lam, you know, being sought by the FBI for questioning in connection with the burglary. Hunt, I should just say, was not actually in the building when the burglars were arrested. He was in a command post in a hotel across the street. So he wasn't arrested at the scene of the crime, even though he was overseeing the burglary from the command post. So he's a, he's a fugitive. And uh, Helms and Nixon are trying to figure out what they're going to do. And so Nixon calls in Haldeman and he says, look, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do, Bob. We're going to play it tough. Play it tough. That's how they play it. We're going to play it tough. And so he's, he's really kind of gearing himself up to put the squeeze on Helms. He wants Helms to help shut this thing down and you know make sure that the investigation of the burglars doesn't connect them to the White House. And of course, Helms has the same concern. He wants to make sure that the investigation of the burglars doesn't connect them to the CIA. So Nixon tells Haldeman, call, call Helms in and tell him that if this investigation goes forward, it's going to blow open the whole Bay of Pigs thing. Now, right. So now, now the conversation where Nixon talks to Helms about the Husha John angle had happened eight months before that. Okay, and it was one of the very few meetings that that Nixon had with Helms in the Oval Office. So Dick Helms had not forgotten that conversation when Haldeman comes to him and says, "The president says shut this operation down because if you don't, it's going to blow up in the whole Bay of Pigs thing." Helms, when he hears this threat, and it was a threat and a very nasty threat, blows up, is angry. And shouts at Haldeman, this doesn't have a damn thing to do with the Bay of Pigs, which shows just how touchy Dick Helms was about the question 
of the linkage of the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy's assassination. Dick Helms was not a man who lost control of his emotions often. And when, when Nixon issued this threat, and it was basically blackmail, um, <clears throat> he was very angry. Right. So it still was involved in this whole thing. The Watergate at JFK was still there. And you include that. I mean, those are your opening chapters. Also, Helms making the denial before uh, before what committee it was. Yeah. The CIA was not involved, you know. But yeah. Yeah. So 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 at, after a year, Helms is finally called to testify to the Senate Watergate committee. The Watergate scandal has blown up the Senate Watergate hearings. You know, they're like the January 6th hearings now. You know, it's like. There's lots of attention, even more, you know, uh, than on the January 6th hearings today. The country's kind of riveted by this spectacle because Americans had never seen anything like it. We, it was something of a more innocent country. And, and all the machinations that had gone into Watergate are, you know, roiling the press and shaking up politics and, uh, you know, obsessing people in these televised hearings. And so Nick Helms finally comes to testify in August 1919. 73. <clears throat> Very rare for a CIA director to testify in open session in Congress, much less uh, about, you know, a political burglary com committed by former CIA employees. So Helms's appearance is, is highly uh, sought after, you know, much anticipated. And he puts on a magnificent performance of, you know, browbeating his interrogators and saying, there was no CIA involvement. He's practically shouting, you know, and the press basically buys it. You know, Helms had a lot of respect. He had a lot of friends in the press corps. He was very adept at that. He was friends with Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, friends with Cy Sulzberger, the scion of the New York Times family and a columnist himself. So, you know, he had good credentials and he had a lot of credibility. And so when he said we had nothing to do with these people, you know, even Woodward and Bernstein couldn't prove otherwise, and they tended to believe it, you know, but it was all a big cover story. That's for sure. Right. It was definitely part of the story. Jefferson, we're at the 40 minute mark. Do you have time for a few questions? Love to love to hear from, you know, what people think, what's on their mind. It's, one is, wasn't this a cover up for uh, Firepix? He says, wasn't that a cover up for ransacking Ellsberg psychologist's office? Wasn't that was related yeah. to Watergate, right? Yeah. So, so one of the national security missions that 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 the that the burglars, namely Hunt and Liddy, uh, with the help of Rolando Martinez um, and and, uh, uh, and and Macho Barker, was to burglarize the office of the psychiatrist of Daniel Ellsberg, the man who had leaked the Pentagon Papers to the New York Times. So. They were searching for blackmail information, basically. You know, what had what had Ellsberg confided in his psychiatrist? And maybe they could use that dirt to discredit him in the press. So yeah, that was one of the things that 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 Helms had to cover up after the arrest of the burglars was that the CIA had helped Hunt in this endeavor to break into the psychiatrist's office. So yeah, that was part of the cover-up was to keep that that mission of the Watergate burglars off the books. And, and it worked, at least for that story didn't come out until about a year after the burglars were caught. Um, mm -hmm. And so for the first year, the story was, you know, these White House burglars. After a year, people began to see, oh, wow, the, you know, these burglars had a lot of help from the CIA. Another question from GP Floor. I don't know if it involved the book, but he asks, 
Can you talk about the Hank Greenspun letter and its role in Watergate? Yeah, so Hank Greenspun was a newspaper publisher in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas was the home headquarters of the Hughes Tool Corporation, which was the company created by Howard Hughes, who was at that time was the richest man in America, probably one of the few billionaires in America at the time. Um, And Hughes was a very important factor in, you know, kind of in the background of the story for several reasons. One, the Hughes Tool Company was a major CIA contractor. Um, One of the tool, one of the projects that they undertook at this time was a Soviet submarine had sunk in the Pacific and uh, the CIA came up with the idea of going down and picking up the submarine off the bottom of the Pacific Ocean and bringing back up and studying its technology and seeing, you know, what kind of nuclear missiles, what kind of engines it had and all of that. And so the Hughes, the Hughes Corp company was doing that for the CIA. Hughes also had connections to Nixon. Um, Hughes had loaned Nixon money in the, in the, in the 1950s and Nixon had never repaid, uh, repaid the loan, which was a kind of scandal that the, that the Democrats used against Nixon. It was kind of a shady financial deal that Nixon was never, could never explain very well. Why had he taken money from Howard Hughes? And Howard Hughes was also uh, um, uh, Larry O'Brien, the head of the Democratic National Committee, was also working for Hughes as a, you know, as a consultant and a lobbyist, so, which aroused Nixon's ire. So Greenspun was very interested in Hughes. And um, the Nixon people thought, were very worried that Greenspun had information that he was going to publish about Hughes and Nixon during the, ni- the coming 1972 presidential election. And so the burglars want to, uh, you know, uh, burglarize Greenspun's office and find out what he's got. Um, I, you know, there's a difference of opinion about whether that actually ever happened or not, but that was another target. Hank Greenspun, publisher of that newspaper in Las Vegas, was another target of the burglars. Oh, I see. Yeah, good question. And what do you think, John asks, what do you think about Roger Stone's book, Nixon's Secret? You know, <laughs> Roger Stone, I've met the man, you know, he, he's a very tricky character to deal with, you know, and um, uh, he, you know, he's got his start under Nixon, uh, you know, and shared that slashing hardball style of politics that Stone carried on. Um, and used to great effect with President Trump. But, you know, Roger Stone's not the most trustworthy of witnesses. So I was very wary of the things he said, because, you know, with a guy like Stone, a lot of these claims are hard to corroborate. And you don't want to just repeat them and find out, you know, that there was nothing to it or that it was twisted or wrong or something. So I was aware of Stone's book and, and, and consulted it just because he did figure in the Nixon orbit at that time. But it's not a very reliable source. Gotcha. And what's your take on Fletcher Prudy? I know some people have differing differing opinions on his. I mean, you know, analysis. Uh, yeah, Fletcher Prouty was the uh, chief of Pentagon Special Operations in 1963, and really became uh, known, uh, famous as uh, uh, Colonel X in uh, in J- Oliver Stone's um, JFK. He, that, that character played by Donald Sutherland is based on Fletcher Prouty. I mean, you know, I don't agree with everything Fletcher Prouty ever said in life, 
But, um, you know, you can't deny he had a very high position in 1963, chief of Pentagon Special Operations. This was not somebody who was unfamiliar with how the Pentagon or American power or secret operations worked in 1963. So, you know, when when Prouty was, you know, had a conspiratorial explanation of President Kennedy's assassination, I mean, I think he, he had enough professional credentials that that opinion has to be respected. So that's my take on Fletcher Prouty. And what's your view of uh, Robert Mayhew? I think he was like the... Yeah, so, so yeah, May and Mayhew's an important character lurking in the background of, of this book because he figures in several of these stories. When back in 1960, when Helms and Nixon are working together on the um, on the you know the, the plans to overthrow Castro, um, the CIA goes to Mayhew and said, "Look, we want to assassinate Castro. How can we do that?" And Mayhew says, "Well, you got to get in touch with these mafia crime bosses." who have dominated the casinos in Havana. First of all, they'll know how to get around and do things in Cuba. And second of all, they'll know how to do things like kill people. So why don't you go work with them? And so Mayhew makes the introduction between the CIA and the mafia. And that's how the mafia comes to deal with Sam Giancana, the big crime boss of Chicago, and his sidekick, Johnny Rosselli, the big crime boss of Las Vegas. Both of these men were very big in the casino business in Havana before the revolution. So when Castro took power and threw them all out, they had this, you know, big desire for revenge. They'd lost a lot of investment, a lot of money. They wanted to get back in there. And so they were quite willing to help kill Castro. So they never succeeded in doing that. Castro was a smart guy and he had created a powerful security apparatus around him. And they never really got close to Castro. They never got close to killing But Mayhew came away with that with an ace in the hole, right? He had helped the CIA on this dirty trick. So when Mayhew gets in trouble with the law um, in 1962 and in 1967 and again in 1971, he plays this card every time he gets in trouble. And Rosselli does too. And, um, uh, and the most important time, which I, which I explain in the book, is in 1971. Rosselli's called before a grand jury in, in Los Angeles. He's running a crooked card game out there. They were fleecing Hollywood Hollywood actors. And uh, the FBI was onto this. They couldn't get Rosselli on the many murders he was involved in. So they figured they'd get him on this running this rigged card game. And they uh, they call him to testify. And so he plays the, the, the Castro assassination card again. And he, he, he tells the White House through his lawyer that if he's called to testify before the Supreme Jury, he's going to talk about how he helped the CIA try to assassinate Castro, knowing full well that if he says something so controversial in the grand jury, it's going to leak immediately, and the CIA is going to have a hell of a you know, public relations problem on its hand. And so Nixon and Helms immediately or- organize a deal, and they cave into the blackmail. And they tell Rosselli's lawyer, look, Johnny doesn't have to go talk to that grand jury. Just come and talk about this card this crooked card game to our prosecutors here in Washington. And please don't mention your service to the U.S. government back in 1960 when we were trying to kill Casper. And so Rosselli takes that deal. And so, you know, but there it was, you know, that was a secret that both Helms and Nixon had to keep suppressed because it would have been very dangerous for both of them. So that's how they worked together. And Robert Mayhew, you know, Johnny Rosselli's friend, was... In, in, in the middle of all of that, 
So Mayhew is a very important character in the story. It's just chock full of intrigue, that whole era. There's yeah. like this background currents and everybody's trying to keep secrets. Really a fascinating book yeah. and discussion. Uh, Jefferson, what would you like to add? Is there anything I missed before we wrap this up? Uh, well, you know, uh, if people are intrigued by this, uh, you know, I, I'd urge them to, uh, uh, to to buy the book. I've been enjoying the audiobook version of it. Um, the same actor who read The Ghost, my book about James Angleton, reads this book. And he's got a great voice and great intonation. And, and he really, hit, the performance of the book really brings out some of the drama of the story. So I'm not usually an audiobook guy, but... Um, in this case, uh, I enjoyed it. And if you're, you know, if you're one of those people who likes to, you know, to consume your books that way, um, definitely get the audio book of this version because it's quite it's good. John Pruden, right? John Pruden. John Pruden, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. John Pruden. So there's an audio book, there's a hardcover, there's a Kindle. And yeah. can people buy side copies from you from your website? Yeah, I, 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 I haven't put them up yet, but I just got the books. So, um, yes, I, you will be able to buy signed copies of scorpions dance or the ghost via my website and that's jfkfacts.org right or jefferson yeah. morley yeah jeffersonmorleybooks.com um and if people want to keep up on you know i'm not uh i'm not uh, i do some journalism still um and commentary on on jfk case and things in the news so if people want to follow me on twitter at jefferson morley uh, uh you can find me there and that's probably if people want to get in touch uh, send me a direct message through Twitter. That's probably the best, quickest way to get in touch with me. And, you know, people want to follow up and ask questions that way. Uh, you know, I'm always glad to do that. Or, and also, you know, I'm always, I'm always looking for new information. So, you know, if people have a story from this time that, you know, they wonder if I've heard it or, you know, they have a question about that. Um, I welcome those kind of questions because, you know, I find, I wind up learning stuff that way, which is my stock and trade. So, uh, awesome. Know, so people please, can reach please. out to you on Twitter. I will put that in the show notes at Jefferson Morley. Yeah, yeah, direct. Yeah, send me a direct message at uh, uh, at Twitter, and uh, and I'll respond that way. Awesome. Thanks so much for your time, Jefferson. Again, the title of the book is Scorpions Dance: The President, the Spymaster, and Watergate. Just published June seventh, twenty twenty two. There is an audio book, so check that out. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, William. All right, take care. All right, stay there.